0: 21 years ago this month, a human bomb sent by the Hamas terrorist organization walked into a busy Sabaro restaurant in the center of Jerusalem and murdered 15 people, most of them children and young mothers. Among the dead, U.S. citizen Malki Roth, age 15. Malki's parents have waged a 21 year campaign to bring the terrorists who murdered their daughter to justice. One of them, Ahlam Tamimi, who lives as a revered pop icon in Jordan despite the roth family's request for extradition to the united states today we're joined by Malki's father arnold roth to reflect on the sabaro massacre 21 years later and tell us more about his fight for justice don't push pause you're listening to jewish insiders limited liability podcast and welcome back to jewish insiders limited liability podcast guess who i found guess who's back Jared Bernstein, how well, are you?
1: Good, good to be back with you, Rich. Uh, you know, really enjoyed you having a little bit of a Clint Eastwood moment, uh, <laughs> you know, talking at me to an empty chair. Sorry I couldn't be with you all last week, but uh, it's great to be back, and uh, especially for what I think is going to be a very powerful interview today
0: absolutely absolutely we'll put on hold our discussion of what increasingly looks like an even worse deal than i described last week but you know we'll we'll, we'll, we'll let it play out still another week we'll see if we see the deal soon enough uh, but for now we are joined uh, by an incredible person arnold roth uh, born and raised in melbourne australia his wife Frimet, was born in queens new york together and their family made aliyah in the early 1990s their daughter Malki held U.S., Australian, and Israeli citizenship, and she was murdered 21 years ago this month in the Sabaro Restaurant Massacre in central Jerusalem. Mr. Roth, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks very much, Rich. Good to be here.
0: Uh, 21 years later, take us back in time, if you could, before August 2001. Who was your daughter, Malki Roth?
2: Uh, Malki was the youngest of the four children that we brought with us from Australia when we moved to Israel in uh, the summer of 1988, and she was just two and a half years old. In 2001, she was a, uh, had just finished 10th grade, had um, acquired um, the leadership of a group of girls um, through a youth group, and had proved proven herself to be terrifically good at this and was an advocate for change in her own circle, in the school, in the social uh, setting for children with disabilities. I mentioned that because uh, the youngest of our children who uh, lives with us today and uh, who was born uh, 10 years after Malky uh, is, is catastrophically disabled. And Malky was somebody who just looked right past that and saw a sibling, a sister who she, whom she adored uh, and that was actually a, a large part of her personality. She was always smiling and uh, very engaged with other people. Just a wonderful human being to be around.
1: Twenty years ago seems like a long time, but in many ways it's like yesterday. So many of us came of, came of age in that time. I remember the Sparrow bombing pretty vividly. Take us back to the days, to that day, and the days that followed.
2: I can do that pretty briefly because that's how it's engraved in my memory. Briefly, Uh, I was running a drug development company. Uh, I had a full afternoon of meetings with a Swiss, uh, 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 Novartis, a big uh, producer of drugs. Uh, I was based in Jerusalem, which is also where we've been living uh, all these years. And um, um, at around two o'clock, I got back from lunch. My wife was on the phone and she was shrieking into the phone, something I'm not at all used to. And she said that there'd been a pigua, a a terror attack in the center of Jerusalem. She knew that because she was on the floor with our youngest child, uh, watching CNN. And uh, her message was, I can't reach the children. And then she hung up. Um, Naturally, like everybody else in Jerusalem, I reached for my phone and called all of my children, one after the other. That's what cell phones are for. And uh, I found very quickly that the cell network had gone down. I don't know if that happens anymore, but that was certainly what happened when there were catastrophes in the air in 2001. Uh, An hour later, I still hadn't reached uh, Malki and I had spoken to the other children. And from there, it was just a a, a, a movie plot that just got darker and blacker and and more awful. I cancelled all of my uh, conference calls and meetings for that afternoon, uh, starting at about, I don't know, maybe an hour later and headed home because it, my wife, told me that uh, she was going crazy. Uh, She didn't know what to do, and she had to do something. So she was leaving the house and going to a hospital to see what she might learn there. That was already several steps beyond where I was mentally. Uh, But it also meant I had to rush home because our youngest child needs care uh, all the time. So that's what I did. I I, uh, went home uh, to an empty home except for our daughter, who was uh, then five, I guess, um, or six. Uh, and uh, I sat there trying to field the calls that were coming in from members of the family and from it. There was no progress. And uh, we all ended up back at home um, until around five o'clock, 5.30 that afternoon. This is the 9th of August, 2001. And the downstairs neighbor lovely lady who's no longer alive, came up the stairs with an awful look that I'll never forget on her face. And she said, Michal is dead. Michal was our daughter's best friend. And we knew that they were together. And we hadn't had any status update. Well, the television had provided the first status update. So we knew we were in something that was more worrying, more catastrophic than anything that I think we were prepared for. And so it went until 2 in the morning. Um, two in the morning, our two oldest sons uh, had been accompanied by a social worker. They went down to the government forensic center in in Yafo, near Tel Aviv, and at roughly two o'clock, they phoned home from there and they said they had found Malki. And that was uh, as you can imagine, uh, just one of those moments you never forget. But I also don't remember too much about what happened just before it and what happened just after it. The following day, we, we buried Malki. She was the last of the victims in the Sabara massacre to be buried. She was the 15th. Uh, as we learned later, there was a 16th victim who's still alive today, but is in a vegetative coma and has been all these years. Uh, and then the rest of our lives, which has taken on an entirely different uh, color as compared with how it was before, the massacre and losing Malki.
0: And this massacre, uh, primarily responsible, uh, reportedly, it was Hamas. Uh, but the the bomber is just one part of an operation, right? You've you've really dissected the operation, the people complicit, the people involved in various ways uh, in this massacre. Tell us what you have pieced together over twenty plus years of what happened and who is responsible, because I think it leads us to the core issue of today.
2: Uh, that last phrase. Uh, means that I have to drop about 95% of what I can share with you. But of course, no one's interested, not as interested as I am in all of the details. Uh, What you've said is right, uh, though it wasn't right on the day. On the day, there was competition between Islamic Jihad and Hamas as to who had carried out the massacre. In fact, Islamic Jihad were planning one and were giving credit to a suicide bomber, as they call it, a human bomb, who was actually still alive at that moment. And because they released the information prematurely, he never actually got to go to his virgins. Uh, And as far as I know, he's still alive today. We didn't know who the people were behind the label Hamas until several weeks later. And then, as has been the case from that day pretty much until today, everything we learned came through the news. So we learned through the news that a woman had been arrested and charged and that several men had been arrested and charged. And in the fullness of time, they were put on trial. And when the trials happened, we learned about that through the news. We learned about what they said and what the court said and what the verdict was through the news. And eventually we learned that they'd been sentenced. In the case of Ahlam Tamimi, the woman who, as we now know, and certainly did not know at the time, uh, found the site, uh, sought it out because of the large number of Jewish children in a uh, strictly kosher pizzeria in the center of town on a school holiday. Um, she has been, in effect, a poster child for the redemptive value of murdering Jewish children. She's she's a, a fetishist. She's made something out of this that is absolutely incredible. At, at minimum, it's a career. She's had a career, a spectacular career. Uh, but I, I have to compress this because I'll, I'll end up losing you in the detail She was arrested, charged, convicted, and sentenced to to 16 terms of life imprisonment, one for each of the people she'd murdered, and one for, there's there's disagreement as to what that other one was, but 16 terms of life imprisonment, with a strong recommendation by the panel of three judges that there be no circumstances under which she should ever be released or have a shortened sentence. Of course, that's not the way it played out. And in 2011, with the euphoria around the release of Gilad Shalit and the government deal between Israel and the Hamas, um, she walked free against our deeply, deeply bitter opposition to her being released, that it was a useless. No one was interested, no one uh, listened, and we were really talking. In addition to talking to the international media, we were talking to the war. She went back to Jordan, which is where she came from. She was a Jordan, Jordanian citizen, born and bred. Her father served in the Jordanian army. And she arrived back in Jordan as a genuine certifiable VIP. She was very quickly caught up in public appearances all over the kingdom, and then later throughout the Arab world. And starting in February 2012, so we're talking now uh, three months, three or four months after she was given back her, her life uh, through the Shalit deal, she began a TV career as a um, presenter of her own program. I should say that she was also the newsreader for a Palestinian Arab TV station on the night, of, on the, the evening after the massacre. And in fact, that's what she rushed away from Jerusalem to do after the, uh, the bomb went off. Uh, that was to read the news and t- perfectly straight face, and I, I have snippets of video to prove it. She announced that there'd been a, uh, uh, well, th- the massacre had taken place, those aren't her words. Uh, that career has really gone on until the present day. She now no longer travels outside of Jordan, Uh, and we can go into those reasons, but there's lots of detail here which I don't think will interest uh, other people as much as they interest me. She lives free. She's a celebrity. She's adored. And if, like me, you were to read the Arabic media every morning, which is what I do as soon as I get up uh, using uh, online translation, uh, you'd see that she's as adored today and probably more than she was then.
1: Mr. Roth, tell us about the the exchange. How were you notified? What were you feeling? Did the government, uh, the government apologize, try and reason with you, make a case to you about why they believed that this was necessary? Tell us about that interaction.
2: No one talked to us, not then and not since. No one was interested in our views, we recognized that there was an option of going to the uh, High Court of Justice, as it's called in Hebrew, the bagats, and to try to uh, enjoin the government from doing this. The government gave public notice of 48 hours before the actual handing over of uh, of the 1,027 prisoners, most of whom were murderers. Uh, that's not enough time to do very much, but there were people who tried. Uh, we kept away from going into the court because the humiliation that we saw as being part of that process, we just didn't feel up to. But other people apparently were okay with that and were duly humiliated totally in the process. I don't have kind words to say. I think that the entire Shalit transaction was premised on a series of uh, of um, disingenuous statements, and that's where I'll, I'll stop the characterization, disingenuous statements about... What its implications were and what was known, uh, I can only say that for the very many who have said who said then and have said over the years that this is the Jewish way that uh, and the and the way that Israel Israel has to conduct itself. It's, there's a social contract with soldiers. We don't leave anybody in the field. I'm here to say, as the descent, direct descendant, son after son of a figure called the Maharam Miratenberg who was taken hostage in, I think, the 12th century and for whom uh, enormous efforts were made to raise the ransom money to have him freed. He stands for the proposition that you don't ransom when there are thugs out there taking people hostage. And in fact, he died in in the uh, the, the prison of a German uh, uh, leader at the time and refused to be uh, redeemed as a hostage. Redeeming hostages is a really loaded issue in Jewish life and anybody who tries to flatten it out and make it uh, sound like, well, it's the obvious thing to do is simply wrong. This isn't the Jewish way. In any event, the catastrophic uh, consequences that we talked about in the many interviews we did in the days, uh, the three days leading up to the, to the uh, actual handing over of the uh, terrorists, were all borne out. People were murdered. Uh, the uh, entire leadership of Hamas today, is made up of people who were in Israeli prisons for the rest of their lives until the Shalit deal. Uh, it is what I called at the time and continue to call today in Hebrew, a cause of wailing for generations to come. Uh, and we're not out of it. That doesn't have anything much to say about uh, Tamimi herself. Uh, we, from it, and I were uh, not just bitter, but articulately bitter. Um, saying to anyone who would listen, this is a really, really big mistake and she should not be set free. She in particular should not be set free. She's uh, charismatic. She has had a TV career. She is smart. She's uh, and all of the rest. Uh, And all of this was ignored. So she has had, as I said, a pretty spectacular career, which continues until today. And all of it is for the sake of evil and for the doing of things that none of us none of us in our right minds would ever want to see encouraged.
0: My next question and where this sort of story goes from here is premised on another question, which goes back to, you know, who is Malki, who are you? Maybe just, just very briefly tell us about your family, where you come from, where your wife comes from, the citizenship that you all individually have enjoyed, because I think that's very important here for the context of where we're going.
2: Um, You're absolutely right, and you've you've, um, reminded me that I've skipped a really critical piece. I'm Australian, and anybody who's listening now will realize I'm not uh, from any part of the United States, though I lived in the United States after I finished law school. Um, My wife is an American. All of our children have American citizenship, and it was only after the murder of Malky and then the release of her killer that I did some digging and consulting uh, with others and learned that the United States has a federal law Uh, in which uh, a terrorist who carries out a, a terrorist act using a weapon of mass destruction outside of the United States, producing the deaths of American citizens, is rendered liable under American law, and the American government reserves to itself the privilege and the obligation to go chase that person, bring that person into the United States and put them on trial under that law. That's obviously a very significant piece of information. I have to tell you that when I went to Washington, a week after the announcement that Tamimi was getting her own TV show, which then went to air for five years every week, uh, I opened my presentation to the leadership of the DOJ in Washington and a solid contingent of senior FBI agents and investigators and, and managers and said, here's what the law says, and I know that it's never been applied in a single case involving Israelis, involving acts of murder by Arab terrorists in Israel. And I'm calling on you to do that in this case. And I have to say, I got a very warm response. In the end, that's exactly what did happen. But, and here, uh, Rich, we move into the kind of science fiction area in, in, in this narrative. Uh, everything happened the way I had requested, only it took five years. And it was five years of total silence. So it wasn't until the 14th of March 2017 that the American government very courteously sent a delegation to us here in Jerusalem to let us know three hours before the announcement, announced that charges were being presented against her, that uh, against Ahlam Tamimi, that she was being named an FBI Most Wanted Terrorist that day, uh, that a request had been made of the Jordanian government with whom the United States has had an extradition treaty, a treaty by which one country can call on the other country to hand over fugitives, and that uh, the Jordanians had already refused. All of that was made known to us in a hotel in Jerusalem uh, three hours before the rest of the world knew about it. And that has really, those facts have really been the contour of the lives that my wife and I have lived ever since. And let me just jump in before you ask another excellent question and say, we're not obsessives and we're not nutcases. We have a loving marriage, loving family life. We're productive people. We're involved in the community. Both of us are qualified as lawyers. I've worked as a lawyer since 1976. We're plugged into Jewish issues. I've been involved in Jewish leadership positions, both at the world level and in Australia from the time that I was a college student. I could go on like that. The point of all of this would be, we're not exceptional, we're very ordinary. And when we go after the murderer of our child, my assumption is that most people, given the opportunity, would do the same. What I have to say, by way of sort of wrapping up that part of my answer is, and it's been a deeply bitter experience. And when I say bitter, I mean that people whom we would have always thought would be standing by our sides, shoulder to shoulder, are not next to us, not shoulder to shoulder. And in many cases, uh, uh, subtly opposing what we're doing. No one can convince, I'm sorry, one more sentence. No No one can convince us that anything we're doing is wrong. It's absolutely right. This is not a privilege or a favor that we're asking. We don't want a postage stamp in our daughter's memory. We want US justice to be done. And so does the US government, at least in the form of its justice mechanisms. But you'd be surprised, most people would, to know just how many obstacles we continue to face every day in pressing for that to happen.
0: And so just, just to boil this down for our listeners, and then I'll t- turn over to, to Jared uh, for, for, I'm sure, a follow-up. We have a 15-year-old American citizen brutally, brutally massacred in 2001, 10 years later, One of the people responsible for that brutal massacre, who had been sitting in an Israeli prison, is released, goes to Jordan as a celebrity. It takes six more years for the U.S. government to file charges against that person for carrying out a terrorist attack with weapons of mass destruction against that U.S. citizen, that 15-year-old girl. And here we sit now, five years later, with an extradition request pending before Jordan, somebody on the terrorist most wanted list. And she is still in Jordan as a celebrity, and you see her in your morning read clips. Jordan, of course, one of the largest recipients of U.S. foreign assistance. I'll, I'll pause there. Jared, feel free yeah, to
1: Yeah, Mr. Roth, I wanted to ask you to you know because clearly you've you've devoted a part of your life to, to justice for your daughter which as a father you know I hope to never know that but I can understand that um, what is the Jordanian position given the treaty given that the facts we hear really aren't in dispute in any way shape or form
2: excellent question um- I, I always need to compress these things down because the detail is what maddens me, but I'll just say the uh, the important points. The Jordanian position was articulated six days after the charges were unsealed in March 2017, so that on the 20th of March, the highest court for this purpose, the highest appellate court, it's called the Court of Cassation in Jordan, pretty much out of the blue from the point of view of the American embassy and me, uh, handed down a ruling that the, the uh, 1995 extradition treaty uh, entered into between Jordan and the United States, or more particularly, King Hussein, the father of today's king, and the Clinton administration was invalid, was invalid. Why was it invalid? Um, trust me when I can say that there's a lot of detail here, although the statements from the court were very bl- blunt and brief, but it's, it's invalid because Jordan failed to do something. It failed, according to the court, to get the ratification of that treaty and the ratification according to that judgment needed to be done by the parliament. Um, almost every word of that I've just used is either a lie or an exaggeration or being disingenuous. Uh, and to jump to the bottom line, it's been so infuriating to us not get uh, support and uh, sh- the shoulder to shoulder that I was talking about before that we actually litigated. Uh, we filed an application under the Freedom of Information Act in the United States, asking the State Department to hand over the documents that related to that uh, extradition treaty of 1995, which, by the way, the United States uh, continues to regard as being valid, Um, and we were ignored. We filed papers a second time, and we were ignored. And then we decided we're going to sue the US government, and we did. And we got a settlement almost immediately. almost as if they were waiting for us to do this. But by this time, it had taken us several years. And then we got the documents. We continue to get documents from the State Department via their lawyers, the Justice Department, uh, even now. But the key documents arrived in the first handover. And the most key of the key documents is a document of ratification of the treaty signed in the personal hand of King Hussein, who talks about God ensuring that no one will ever come to undermine the treaty in the future. Now, no journalist has ever picked up on my various hints about the existence of this document, which no one, as far as I know, has seen except us and, and the lawyers involved. And I would be very happy to hand over the document to someone who is willing to do the digging down and the exposing and the putting of the, all of this into a context, because to me it's simply outrageous. In the meantime, We've had people from the U.S. government and from a couple of other governments, and I'm I'm skipping all the details, who've said to us, "Well, you know, Jordan doesn't extradite, or Jordan doesn't extradite its own citizens, or Jordan doesn't extradite to the United States because—and it's all untrue." I don't understand why it falls to me. I mean, let me say that again: it's beyond my comprehension that the only person who has taken the trouble to look into all of this, given that this woman is America's most wanted female fugitive today is me. And that's not because I'm special. The only specialness here is that I'm the father of one of the children who was murdered. And Rich, you you, you did say before that this was a massacre involving my daughter, but there were 15 people murdered, the 16th person is still unconscious, and that person, the unconscious uh, woman, uh, and another victim are the Americans. That is, there are two women including my daughter who were murdered, a third woman who's an American who is still unconscious and quite a number of American victims who were injured. Why is it, and and, and the others don't want to pursue this for their own personal reasons. So my wife and I are here as basically emissaries on behalf of all of the victims. Uh, Why does it fall to me to have to have arguments or try to have arguments with say, Jordan's ambassador in Washington? Why does she have the privilege of just ignoring me, throwing my letters in the garbage? arranging for people not to take questions from me or for the people who, from the people who support me. They're, none of them are government officials, they're all individuals. How did we get to the case where the, the true facts about what happened in the extradition agreement with Jordan are being concealed and the truth is only in the hands of the victims? The bottom line of all of this is that Jordan is telling whoppers when they say they don't have to hand her over. But the much more worrying thing, because in the end I don't really care what the Jordanians say, is that the United States government seems to be perfectly okay with saying in a very quiet voice, we're asking for the extradition to happen and that's the law. And in a much larger voice saying, hey, the Jordanians, they are our buddies in the Middle East. President Biden, and he's not the only one in this story uh, whom I'm going to invoke as President of the United States, I could say the same about uh, Obama and about Trump, almost word for word, But President Biden has now taken several opportunities to say, King Abdullah is a loyal friend in a tough neighborhood. And I'm sorry, but I'm fed up to the back teeth with that kind of empty uh, throwing around of slogans. Talk about tough friends. When they've handed over the people they're obliged to hand over under bilateral treaties. That's not what's happened.
0: I'll just note, I'm reading the the State Department's website for those who are trying to understand our relationship with Jordan. The United States is Jordan's single largest provider of bilateral assistance, providing more than $1.65 billion in fiscal year 2021, including over $1.197 billion appropriated by the U.S. Congress to Jordan through USAID, $425 million in foreign military financing $1.7 billion in humanitarian assistance to cover Syrian refugees in Jordan, and a five-year MOU concluded in 2018 during the Trump administration to provide $6.375 billion in bilateral foreign assistance to Jordan over a five-year period. My question, we have gone through different periods of warm and cold relations between Israel and Jordan, we saw uh, quite souring relations during the Netanyahu years, uh, especially towards the end. We've seen an upward trend in warming of relations uh, since uh, the Bennett and Al-Lapid governments. And yet, there doesn't seem to be any difference in the Israeli position on this. Can you give us some insight into what the Israeli government has done, if anything, on this? Do they support you? Do they talk to you? Do they urge this on the Americans? Are they hands-off? Is this well, we got a lot of issues with Jordan, we don't want to get involved here, sort of the same thing you're saying, whether it's President Biden or President Trump did?
2: I'm going to be a little evasive. It's not that I don't have a crystal clear answer. It's that it doesn't serve our interests right now to be particularly explicit about it. But here's what I can say. Uh, The government of Israel has no ability to make this happen. Government of Israel has no charges pending against her, although it ought to, because the release of every single one of those terrorists in 2011 in the Gilad Shalit uh, transaction was released on the basis of a pardon. Now let me pause and say I did not say pardon. There wasn't a single one of them who was pardoned. They were all released under conditional commutation of sentence. In the case of Tamimi, where the conditional commutation of sentences in a piece of paper signed by all the important people. She breached it before the sun went down that day. There's no question that if Israel wanted to go after, but it doesn't. So Israel is really only capable of blocking and the ways in which it can block I'm going to not discuss here. To say that we've had support from Israel, uh, I'm quite open about saying no. Uh, I can say that what everyone knows, using everyone knows in quotation marks, what everyone knows is that the relationship with Jordan entails the Jordanians having armed forces the entire length, north to south and south to north of Israel's eastern border, and the guns of the uh, forces are all pointed at their Jordanian citizens and uh, the people who uh, embody the expression, as everyone knows, uh, hasten to say, and it couldn't be better than that. It couldn't be better than that. So anything that we now do that would cause aggravation to the king, well, we, we don't really want to do that. Now, I'm not going to expand on that anymore, other than to say that uh, <laughs> I've had uh, exhausting, and I would say heartbreaking discussions with pretty much everybody in the power uh, pyramid of Israeli society, some of that is still going on, and that's why I prefer not to uh, be explicit about it at all. But this has not uh, um, a uh, weakened in the smallest way my devotion or that of my wife and our family to Zionism. We know why we're living in Israel, and it's not because we were chased out of Australia in 1988 by the KGB, because there is no KGB, and Australia is a wonderful country. But because we came here to raise our children in Israel, and we love. Uh, what's happened. We are happy and we have children and grandchildren living here. On the other hand, B, um, uh, Israel is not its politicians and Israel is not uh, the people who get up and make the big speeches about how there is nothing, nothing we won't do to get Gilad Shalit back. All of that is the sort of nonsense that politicians are expected to do and that most people go along with until they come back to their senses. At the time of the Shalit deal, the deal itself had the support of more than 90% of Israelis. We now know so much more about things that we didn't know at the time that would probably have reduced that support to uh, certainly less than half the country. So it's a, it's it has not changed our connection to Israel in the smallest way, but it has sharpened, um, I would use the word contempt, the contempt that I personally feel towards politicians in multiple places and multiple uh, levels of seniority, and on that, I'm prepared to speak for the next three or four hours, as you promised me that we would in the near future, Rich. And thank you very much.
1: Mr. Rob, tell us a little bit more about, I, we know you've asked for a meeting with President Biden on this topic. Have you spoke to anybody at the staff level? Have you, you know, uh, who have you spoke to uh, on President Trump's team when he was in office? Um, and, and what And what are they saying? Uh, and then I'm sure, Rich, we can talk a little bit more about, um, you know, what Congress is saying. But what what is the administration saying when you ask these questions?
2: You guys are good. I, I really appreciate the sharpness of the questions. And I don't mean that in a put down sort of way. Um, there's not a single senior official in any of the last three U.S. governments who's engaged with us, not one. Uh, there have been um, people who are several levels below the secretary in each of those uh, offices who have spoken with us either off the record and strictly confidential, and that includes diplomats, or on the basis that they're listening, but they won't tell us anything. Uh, I can tell you that since 2017, with a single exception of March, of the 14th of March, on the day that the delegation came and sat with us in a hotel in downtown Jerusalem, there hasn't been a single situation where any US official has said, listen, this is how it is. Let me lay it out for you. That hasn't happened. Pretty much everything we know, and we know a lot, has come from leaks, from unofficial statements, from friends of friends. Uh, Some of it has come from people who have sat with the King of Jordan in Washington. He's there a lot, much more than people realize, uh, or in New York, Uh, and he'll be there next week or in two weeks time, as he is every year at this time of the year for the opening of the United Nations General Assembly. Uh, People who have sat in the presence of the King, sometimes in the presence of his foreign minister or his Uh, ambassador to Washington, and have brought back insights that uh, really help us build our case, which is to say the Jordanians can't be allowed to make this decision on their own. The Jordanians are driven by a need that none of us need to respect, and they have zero commitment to telling the truth on these issues. So far as the American government is concerned, it's really been an embittering experience. I know I've used that word now several times in this conversation, but it's the truth. I don't know of a better way to express it. We've had several go rounds in Washington, uh, trying to recruit support in the Congress. And here, this is the point at which I need to put up a sort of protective shield around myself and say, we don't have a partisan viewpoint on how American politics ought to be run. My wife and I are genuinely not connected to the Republicans and not opposed to the Democrats and any of those configurations, they're not applicable to us. We are really driven by a passion for seeing justice done in the case of a very deeply loved child and the awful circumstances of her murder. And we don't really care about the politics of the people who are turning their backs on us or making uh, empty statements. So that's uh, an important statement to lead into the fact that the only signatures I think we've ever gotten on letters to the Jordanian ambassador, on letters to a series of uh, secretaries of state, have come from the GOP side. And they've been very, very, very few. On the Democrat side, there have been, I need to check myself a little carefully, but I'm prepared to say none. Uh, and if I'm wrong, I'll, I'll apologize, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that it's none. And again, this is not because Well, here's what it's also not because. I was going to say something else. It's not because my wife and I have made fools of ourselves when we go to Washington. Neither of us has been to Washington since uh, I was there in 2016 to give testimony in front of uh, the House Oversight Committee on National Security. It was a good opportunity for me to go there, but that was all predicated on the uh, fact that the Justice Department hadn't announced uh, that they had already gotten charges against her at that stage three years earlier. Uh, so we didn't know that. Uh, but neither of us have been back there. We have a very sick child here in our home. And uh, my wife needs my support and I need her support and I don't travel anymore. I used to be in overseas a week, a month for the last 40 years. That, that's history now. So it's not that we've gone to Washington and gone into the Congress and made jackasses of ourselves. There are being very good people, very competent people who have represented us in various meetings, tried to have meetings with members of Congress. That usually means meeting with their legislative directors or the communications directors or the first cousin of the legislative director's communication director. It can be a frustration trying to get people's attention and getting very meager results. The, the last round of results came in March or April of this year when uh, 11 uh, Congress uh, members of Congress of the House Uh, All of them, as I say, on the GOP side, signed onto a letter addressed to uh, Secretary of State Blinken. I'm I'm avoiding a lot of detail about that. I can only say the letter was ignored uh, as previous letters have been ignored. And in fact, as almost every effort to get any kind of meaningful conversation, meaningful conversation beneath the level of we're so sorry for you, Mr. Roth. We feel so deeply for you, Mr. Roth. Uh, Get anything deeper than that going there have been uh, no less embittering conversations or attempted conversations with the people who represent the United States uh, here in Israel. The details I really am going to skip, but I I have to convey that we're ill-equipped to be treated like the lepers that we're clearly being treated as by these people who are in a position to be open. It's clear that people are not being open with us. It's also clear that for the most part, almost without exception, the American mainstream media has either been warned not to cover the story or genuinely feels that this is a story that no one gives a damn about. Now, I'm inclined to think that there are a lot of people, once it's explained, do give a damn about the story. It was striking to me how the family or the connections, not the family so much, of uh, Shireen Abu Akla the uh, journalist for Al Jazeera who was killed in a firefight between Israeli soldiers and uh, and terrorists in in Jenin just a few months ago how the media were all over that story still are how um um Jake Sullivan the head of the uh National Security Council in the White House was all over this story how Secretary of State Blinken how even the president of the United States were all over the story Um, embracing, I'm putting out my arms now, I know there's no camera, but uh, putting out my arms in the form of an embrace. They're, They're embracing these people at every opportunity. They're not embracing us and they never have. And it's not because there's something weak about our case. On the contrary, the woman that we want to see justice done to faces charges that will never be heard in a court until a country that has A treaty, a perfectly valid treaty with the United States stops telling lies about its effectiveness and its validity and hands her over, as it has done in numerous cases of the U.S. wanting Jordanian fugitives to be handed over, as Jordan has done numerous times in the past.
1: Well, Mr. Roth, I, I, you know, speaking for myself, I am honored that you would let us help you tell this story. And shine light on it, and uh, generate renewed interest in America, and uh, you know, do our small part to, to let folks know what is transpiring and what hasn't transpired. To, and to the extent that we can bring uh, light to this, it is our honor to have you with us today.
0: And, and I'll I'll even be more direct and that. Is everyone listening? There's two websites I want you to go on: appropriations.house.gov and appropriations.senate.gov and look for the subcommittee labeled State Foreign Operations. That is the subcommittee that makes all of the decisions of the money that goes to Jordan, the billions of dollars I was talked about. You'll see the membership list in the House and Senate. And if the members themselves are listening, I hope you are. I know many of you actually do listen your staff listen. I want you to think about that because you hold the power of the purse. And I know, having worked that account for many, many years on Capitol Hill, the Jordanians care because the king comes, as Mr. Roth just said, very regularly to speak informally behind closed doors with members of those committees because he knows what they control. You have the power. That's all I'll say. Mr. Roth, you know, we usually do a, a lightning round where we ask our guests some personal ideas to try to lighten subject. I, I don't think it would be appropriate for this interview, but I, I would love for you to share some favorites that uh, Malki had. We usually ask favorite foods and favorite books and favorite people and heroes and inspiration. So if there are some favorites like that you could share, um, I think that would be a great way to honor.
2: I'm going to have um, three shots at this. I'm going to start with something that's not uh, lighthearted at all. On the 4th of September, which may be after this goes to air or before, I don't know, but it's only six days away from, uh, actually I've lost track of how many days, maybe it's more than that, uh, 4th of September is exactly 2,000 days since Akhlam Tamimi was made a fugitive from the US uh, prosecution, and there's a lot we're planning to do to draw attention to that. Malki loved music. She was terrifically talented. She played in the Jerusalem Youth Orchestra briefly. Uh, She was a a classical flautist. And after she was already gone and in the Shiva house, when we were sitting in our home with many guests uh, coming to comfort us, we learned that she had written a song. That song is on the website of uh, the Malki Foundation, which is at uh, Keren Malki, K-E-R-E-N-M-A-L-K-I dot O-R-G. And it's, it's, it exists in many forms today because it's been recorded many times over. The song is in Hebrew, but the language, uh, the, the words are translated on the Keren Malki website. And since I'm mentioning Keren Malki, let me say the most meaningful way that we have found for A, dealing with the the, the profound pain of losing Malki, Malki, and B, forcing people to remember her life has been by creating a charity in her name, which is really very active today. Uh, Because of the cruelty of the, uh, the circumstances of her murder, it turns out that the registration of that charity was done on the 11th of September 2001, which was exactly 30 days, or 30 days according to the Hebrew calendar. After her murder, so we have a charity that was formed on 9/11, which does good work every day for every part of Israeli society. More than a third of the beneficiaries have been uh, Israeli, uh, have been the Palestinian Arabs living living in Israel. Malki loved music. Uh, she had um, uh, this wonderful song, which has now gone to every part of the world and and has different versions of it. Um, but the musical spirit that she carried with her is something that really sustains us. And uh, um, it, it, it's, it's, I want people to know about the, the happy side of, uh, of Malky's life. She wasn't an unhappy person. She left behind unhappy people, her parents. But, uh, but she was really an uplifting, inspiring kind of person. And the Malky Foundation really carries on the spirit of inspiration, the wonderful things that she did for children with disabilities, starting with her own sister, who is catastrophically disabled. As I said, she's blind. She has no communication with the world. Uh, but extending to just sensitizing the kids in her school and in her youth group to the wonderful things that a girl of 15 or 14 or 13 or 12 and a boy can do if you're uh, tuned in to the humanity of those of those children. So it, it sounds like I'm rambling but those are the positive uh, issues uh, that I'd like to respond with.
0: No, I appreciate it. Arnold Raw, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining us here on Limited Liability Podcast.
1: You know, Rich, When I was in law school and I was studying for the bar exam, you would always read these cases, these cases that presented these, these novel legal questions, uh, and then you get to the human dimension of them. And I think what we just heard is like, this is the human cost of, of what foreign policy and the justice system not working together costs. Uh, and and I I hope that our interview and Mr. Roth's publicizing the case for his family to bring his daughter's killer justice moves the needle in Washington, gets the attention of members of Congress uh, to see if we can do better as a country for for Malke.
0: Uh, I agree, and, and let me tell you something. I have been a long supporter of the kingdom of Jordan, of the king and the queen. Uh, I understand the central role for regional stability and security that Jordan plays. I understand the threats that they face internally. I understand all of that. Uh, Not my first time in the rodeo. But I have to tell you that I am increasingly frustrated with the Jordanian feeling of immunity across the board on really kinds of activities that are wholly unacceptable to the U.S. taxpayer, flipping the bill of foreign assistance, and uh, I'm not calling for a disruption in the relationship. I'm not calling for massive pressure on Jordan. Um, I, I am, however, asking that we start taking a look at Jordan a little a little more closely, and not just say, you know, hand over the money and 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 everything's fine, whatever Jordan wants. is is what we should do. Uh, The Jordanians play a nefarious role in the BDS movement. For those who watch this space closely, uh, they get away with a lot, especially at the UN. Uh, The Jordanians should not be allowed to hold on to one of America's most wanted terrorists responsible for the murder of American citizens. That person needs to be extradited, and the U.S. Congress needs to play a role in that.
1: Indeed, and uh, may Malky's memory be a blessing to all who knew her. Amazing. Amazing. If you like this show, tell your friends. Download us on your podcast app of choice, and tell everyone you know because it's the best recommendation we can get.
0: Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening.